The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. I am Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, thankful that you're here. Excited to be here. Excited to see what um, God has for us this morning. As Joel did allude to, I am not feeling the best. Um, Just had a pretty much sinus garbage going on all week long. I know a lot of people are down with it too. And then it dropped to my chest. And um, I asked Rich if I could preach with a whiskey flask today, and he told me no. So I'm going to suffer through it. And if I get in a hacking, coughing fit, please pray for me. That's why I've got water up here today. Um, We are going to do something a little different. We have been working our way all the way through the book of Ephesians. If you're here for the first time today, we are at the end of chapter 5. That means we've made our way, we've made quite some way through the book of Ephesians. But what I want to do, because our culture is so jacked up on this topic, we're going to sit down in this text for for about a month. So we're going to be in this text now for about a month, and we're going to work out some of the implications for us, some of the imperatives and the indicatives in this text. Um, It's a text that many of you, as we were reading it, I saw some women cringing. Um, I saw some men going, yeah, that's right. And you are, you are a moron, all right? You should just be slapped right across the face if you're doing that because you have no idea what that text means. And I'm going to stop right there. I also, I'm going to just give a little side note that I am on cough medicine. So um, whatever I say today, I can blame it on the cough medicine. I usually only put like a fr- certain things in my notes and then any like little excursions that I take. And that's just, you know, the, the spirit, how the spirit leads me. And it's any, if I'm ever, if I ever tell a joke, it's never in my notes. Um, so that can be incredibly dangerous when I'm all hopped up on cough medicine. Okay. So I'm just going to apologize right away. Um, so we are talking obviously about marriage. Now, why talk about marriage when a good percentage of our people at Sacred City are not married? And many people in our culture today think that marriage is an outdated institution. They think it's just a piece of paper. They think it's just, uh, you know, it's legal. It's just some dudes in the golden a- or, or in the bronze age sitting around a campfire. One guy looked at another woman or a guy and said, you know what we should do? We should invent this thing called marriage. Then we could get the women to do what we want. It'd be great. That is not what happened. Um, no matter what sociologists or scientists or whoever wants to, or what our culture wants to tell us. That is not what happened. Um, God instituted marriage in the very beginning. Um, we're going to study Genesis two and three, um, in the next couple of weeks where God creates a man and you have this image of this image of benediction, this image of it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. He creates man. It is not good. And every wife said, amen. Right. He said he created man, but man alone is not good in and of himself. All right. We're already self-centered creatures as it is. Man alone is a bad thing. Okay. So man, it is not good that man be alone. So he made Eve. He made a helpmate. He made um, a wife for Adam and he presents her to Adam in the first ever marriage ceremony. And Adam responds, manly men who don't think Poetry is of men. The first words by man are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Ooh, whoa, man. He's speaking in poetry. It's poetic language, poetry. The first words uttered by Adam when he sees Eve. So romance is a part of being a man. I, that wasn't even in my notes. I'm just going to throw that in because two days away, two days from now, right? Two days from now is just a little something. If you don't know, you better know, okay? You better find out. I'm just going to tell you, you better find out. If you don't know, you better walk, take a walk down the mall and look at all the pink stuff. It's there for a reason, all right? <clears throat> so why are we going to talk about marriage? Why are we going to talk about marriage when a lot of us are single in this room and we have got a lot of different opinions and ideas and, and, and what's the point of marriage anyways? Number one, number one, the first reason we're going to talk about it is because it's in the text, all right? Uh, This is what we do. We just go right through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And if there's a tough text there, we have to deal with it. It's not up to me or you to to decide what's good for you and what's good for me to hear. That's a dangerous spot to be in. If you pick reading scripture, you just flip through and you go like this. Or you just say, what do I want to hear today? And you go, I want to hear something about P. 
peace and you go read something about peace, that's really dangerous because we don't know what we need. We don't know what our souls need. We're blind to most of our need. We're blind to most of our sins. We're blind to most of our failures and faults. So it's good to read books straight through and study books straight through. So number one, it's in the text. So it's our responsibility as disciples of Christ to know what the Bible teaches regardless if we're married or single. And secondly, we're going to study this because it's an issue where every single one of us have our own filters that we see marriage through. And those filters need to be challenged by God's word. If you're single, but your parents were divorced, that experience will filter your thoughts and your perception of marriage. The way you saw your parents love each other and then lead each other, that will shape you and that will give you a filter to how you see and how you perceive marriage. Some of us, um, if you're lonely, you've heard people say, you know, like, well, I'm lonely, I think I'm going to get married. And you hear people say, oh, don't get lonely. It's a terrible reason for getting married. Really? That's why Adam got married. It's not good for man to be alone. One of the, one of the benefits of marriage is it brings people together. It's a lifetime, lifelong friendship. Um, If you're single and your parents had what you perceived to be a great marriage growing up, you might have a really naive filter. That means you think if I pick my soulmate, if I choose the right person, then everything will be smooth sailing and it'll just be great. And divorce will never be an option. And we'll never, you know, we'll never fight if we do. You know, I'll just repent right away and everything will be great. Right. If you've grown up sheltered in the church and your parents were wise and didn't fight around you, you know, they put you in the basement, they go upstairs, lock the door, put a mattress against the wall and then let each other have it. All right. If your parents were like that, you probably have this filter of, oh, what do you mean people fight? What do you mean we're inherently sinful? I don't think so. My parents never fought. It was great. We went to church. (laughs) Right. That is not reality. If you have that naive filter and you step into marriage, you are in trouble. Um, and, every, and, and for every married person in this room, you are more than likely going to filter the purpose of marriage, the concept of marriage, the big picture of marriage through your current circumstance right now. Maybe it's emotionally distant. You've been married for some, some time and you don't really talk about those issues with her and she doesn't really talk about those issues with you and you just kind of keep this distance, Right? No, no real flame, no passion there. Maybe marriage is just a contract. It's just a commitment for the kids' sake. But as soon as the kids are out of the house, uh, maybe we'll look for greener grass. Your experiences will affect how you perceive marriage. Or if you've been divorced and you've experienced a failed marriage, that experience, that experience is going to filter how you see marriage. It might have made you really cynical. You might think that people, you know, this is common right now. You should never get married before the age of 30. Because you just don't know yourself, right? You don't know who you are. It's how can you love someone when they're constantly changing and you're constantly changing? How do I know I'm not going to be in love today and out of love tomorrow? It's this constant, you know, we're all growing. So I might be in love now, but I might not be in love then. My wife and I have been married for coming on eight years. And... I know in our instance, uh, you know, we've been married for eight years and my wife, in those eight years, my wife has lived with at least three different men. All of them me. But I've been at least three different people in the eight years. God has been growing me, maturing me, challenging me. I'm a different man today than I was eight years ago. Well, how could she be confident that she's going to love the new me, the the me that God is making me into? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. So we have basically, if you want to put it on the right hand and the left hand, we have tendencies to do two things. We have tendencies to either romanticize or idolize marriage and say, if I get that person, then I'll be happy. All I need is the love of that person. When I, once I find the one, everything will be perfect. Once I get that guy, once I get that girl, then my life will have meaning. We idolize marriage, or on the other hand, we demonize marriage. And we say it's, it's an outdated institution. What's the point of it? Um, you know, you can never really know anyone. It's temporary. Um, and, and we're going we're gonna to talk about those two extremes today. 
our experiences have a way of distorting how we view marriage. And it's my prayer that God would give us some clarity from his word on this issue this morning. Just what is the purpose of marriage? What's the purpose of it? Why is it here? I think it would do us well to do a quick survey over what we've already covered in Ephesians because this topic of marriage is uh, sitting inside a larger context, mainly the renewal of all things for the glory of God. Okay, so I want us to do something. We are going to go to uh, open up your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter one. It's not in your liturgy. If you've got uh, if you're following liturgy through your iPad, it's not on there. You're going to go to Ephesians chapter one and we're going to do a quick survey. We're going to remind ourselves of the context that we're sitting in here, that Paul's talking about marriage in a larger context. What is that context? Ephesians chapter 1. Now, all of our, pod, all of our messages are on podcasts, so you can go to iTunes and listen to these, because what I'm going to fly through really fast right now, um, we spent weeks talking about. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. This is how Paul starts off this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, hold on. Before we start, let me just pray for her. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, that it's living and active, that it never returns void. I thank you that it's effectual, that it it makes things happen in our heart. It brings forth new life. It renews us from the inside out, that your word is eternal. Father God, that everything in our lives will fail and will fall short and will rot and rust, but your word will stand forever. Um, I thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts, in this city, in our nation, in our world, that you are king over all, you are ruler over all, you are judge over all, and you are making all things new through the power of your spirit. I pray that you would use me in my weakness, that you would use my mind, that you would speak through this weak voice today, and uh, you would anoint the ears to hear, the hearts to believe um, in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this, what he has done, past tense, who has blessed us in Christ. Thanks God. Thanks be to God, we are blessed. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we are lacking nothing. Even as, look at this, he chose us. Somebody say chose us. In him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Look, he chose us that we should be holy and blameless. Look at this, in love. Somebody say in love. He predestined us for adoption. Somebody say adoption. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption. Somebody say redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness, say forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. We have seven word bombs here that Paul drops on us, okay? So before we talk about marriage, I want to do one thing. I want, it's like Google Earth, right? You, You start here, and then you want to go somewhere, and it goes... And it pulls you way back and then it brings you back in. That's exactly what I want to do today. We're going to talk about marriage, but I want to pull back from an eternal perspective, from a cosmic perspective, look at what God's doing in all the world, and then we're going to zoom back in and see what what the heck does marriage have to do with that. So we have seven things. He blessed us in Christ. He chose us to make us holy and blameless. He predestined us in love to be adopted as sons. He blessed us in the beloved. He redeemed us through his love. He forgave us of our sins. He lavished his grace upon us. Do we have anything to praise God for this morning? Right? Right? And the water bill needs to be paid. Okay, big deal. Right? Big deal. Think of that from an eternal perspective. God is good. God is gracious. God is about the redemption of the world. And he looked down and he chose you. Praise be to God. Praise be his glorious grace. Why did he do all these things? Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that's in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God is about God's business and his business is the renewal and the redemption of all of creation. 
God has a plan that is in full effect right now. He is reuniting and renewing all things in Jesus. He is in the process of bringing all things back into line with the way he created them. Jesus was the firstborn of the new creation when he was resurrected. He was the firstborn of the new creation. And one day, God will totally renew this planet, removing all the traces of sin. God is also doing that with us. If you are a Christian, God is in the process of recreating you from the inside out. You're in this cocoon-like state. It's like the caterpillar that goes in and it, 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 it enters this transformation process that becomes a butterfly, that God is doing something and you don't see it from the outside. It's happening internally. God is doing that with all of creation. Sometimes you, and we're living in this sin sick, the days are evil, scripture said uh, last week, the days are evil, so we don't really get to see it with our eyes very often. So we need this, the lens of scripture to show us what's really going on here. What's really going on. So when, when we see these good things on the news occasionally, and we see somebody experience life change, and we see uh, uh, maybe a person that was struggling with addiction, and, and that addiction is broken, and they're set free by the power of God, we're seeing an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. We're seeing new creation, new creation come out. We're seeing little bits and little pieces of that. But one day, when Christ returns, he will unite heaven and earth, and everything on the planet will be made new. On the planet. Did you hear what I said? We're not floating around in some ethereal heaven with little fat cherubs that shoot each other and we giggle all, the, all day long, right? Floating on clouds. That's not what heaven's about. It's not what new creation is about. All right? That's happening right now. But what does this process of recreation look like? What does that look like? What's the nitty gritty? What's the nuts and bolts of that, Justin? All right, we're, we're, we're still. That was just chapter one. So we need to go really quick. Verse 10, we see God is in a process of renewing all of creation. And that began with Jesus. And that's going on in us right now. Uh, chapter three, verse eight, Paul says this. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Why? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in, in God who created all things. Right here. So that, key words, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so number one, God is renewing all things. He's starting, he started with Jesus and he's doing that work in you. Number two, he's doing it through the church, his body, the body of Christ. That's how he's going to renew all of creation. That's how he's renewing people for the glory of God. He's doing it through the church. Number three, verse, um, chapter four, verse seven. Chapter 3, verse 7. Where am I at here? Or chapter 4, verse 7. There we go. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's give. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse, let's go to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. Okay? So next, the goal is to become like Christ. That's the goal. That's the butterfly we're turning into. We are caterpillar turning into a butterfly. The butterfly is Christ. That's the picture of the new creation that we're being developed into. That's the end goal. That's the end game. Okay? I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Whole sermon we preached on this. It's happening internal first. The new creation is happening internal first. No, we don't want that. We don't like that. We want change to happen out here first. I want you to fix me. I want you to fix my wife. I want you to fix my kids. I want you to get this stuff under control. And God says, that's not the way I work. It's a seed that comes in our heart. 
and it changes us from the inside out. Okay, that is how new creation starts. That is how God is renewing all of creation. Now, God is doing all of this. And he has wonderfully written us into this story. All of this is going on and most of us live our lives completely unaware. But the Bible gives us new eyes to see what is really going on. And as Christians, this is how we glorify God. This is our purpose in life, to know God, to understand and to experience his grace, to be a part of his church that is on a mission to renew creation and to be molded and shaped more and more every day into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. This is his goal. This is discipleship. This is our goal. So Paul has said all of that in the first four chapters. We're in a cosmic plan. Every story, every epic story you've ever read is just a piece of the epic story that God is telling. That he's reuniting and recreating all things for his glory and he's written you into this story. And that you're a part of it. And he's deposited it inside you. And you're being recreated from the inside out to be a part of The story of redemption, the story of renewal, this mission of God throughout all the world. He said all that in the first four chapters and now in chapter five, before he gets to the topic of marriage. He gives us this admonishment to walk in love and be filled with the spirit. Now, listen, this is Paul's um, don't try this at home speech. Okay, this is Paul's warning right now. Before he gets to the topic of marriage, he's telling us that the biblical model of marriage is impossible without love and the spirit of God at work on the inside of you. Did you hear that? Why does the Bible say unbelievers and believers should not get married? Because the biblical model of of marriage is impossible without two believers. What do you mean it's impossible? We must be filled with the Spirit of God. Something is going to be required of us that is outside our human nature, that is beyond us, that is too much for us, and it requires us to draw upon a deposit in the Spirit of God. And if you are not a believer, you cannot draw upon that deposit. Does that mean unbelievers can't have good marriages? Absolutely not. That's a whole different topic. I'm not going to say that. But it's saying this. If an unbeliever has a good marriage, it's, he's enabled by the common grace of God. The biblical model of marriage cannot happen without the fullness of the Spirit. He's about to tell us that marriage plays a huge part And God's plan and purpose to renew all things for the glory of God. But that what he is about to say is for Christians. This is not for the world. Listen, if you've heard this, uh, men should, you know, women submit to men and this is for the world. That's not for the world. This is for the church. This is enabled by the spirit of God. Women don't submit to men. Women submit to their husband. Not to men in general. This is a plan for Christians and the church, not for the world. God uses many things to make us into the image and likeness of Jesus. But one of his strongest tools, one of his sharpest blades is that of marriage. Marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and from your life and your life from the ground up. So we're going to jump back into our text. We're going to get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. This statement is the key to understanding everything that comes after it. This statement is the key to understanding everything that comes after it. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 21. When you're there, say there. Submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This sentence is what's called a linking sentence. Okay? It connects 
what's going on in the first part of chapter 5 to what's going on in the second part of chapter 9. If you could read the Greek, the word submit in verse 22 is actually not even there. It's just referring to the verb in verse 21. So when the when the English commentators and English translators put the word submit in there, they're doing us a favor so we know what specifically he's talking about. But there should not be a break. If you have a break in your Bible that says wives and husbands, there really should not be a break there. Verse 21 is a linking sentence to the rest of this chapter. And basically what he's saying is this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, what does that look like? He's going to show us what that looks like in a, in a marriage relationship, then he's going to show us what that looks like in a parenting relationship. Then he's going to show us what that looks like in employee and employer type relationship. What does it look like for the Christian to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? This is totally contrary. This is the foundation he's going to build his exegesis from Genesis 2 that he's going to talk about. This is the foundation he's building it on. Christians walk in humility and submit to one another. This is totally contrary to the culture's view of marriage. This is not biological. This is not instinctual. This is the result of God's new creation in us by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Historically... There have been two predominant, and you can get a million in here, but there's been two predominant views on marriage, okay? Number one, called the dynastic view. This is the ancient view. This is marriage serves a social function. I, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of times these were arranged marriages, that this family chose that family. We want to up our standing in society. We want our family to be well off in the future. So my beautiful daughter will marry that rich man and get his name and then we'll get lands and we'll get all these different things. And it's kind of like a chess game, right? If you've ever watched any of the, the old, you know, the Tudor dynasty or any of that stuff, you can see the chess game that's going on. That's the dynastic view of marriage. Now listen, there's some good things about that view. Divorce was almost uh, non-existent. That people grew up, women grew up knowing my family will choose my spouse or I will get to choose my spouse. And I'm not going to do that because of love. That's foolish. I'm not going to let my feelings tell me who to marry. I'm going to to choose what's wise for my family. I'm going to base my decision on social class. Who will support me? Who will continue my family's name to go into the future? That's how I'm going to choose marriage. So... The good thing about it is marriage had a lifelong commitment. It was for life. Divorce was a rarity. The bad thing was there was very rarely any passion. There was very rarely any emotional affection. Not always, not always. I mean, many times they grew to love each other. But mainly social advancement was driving marriage. You marry for position and status, but there is a high commitment, okay? And now we have, that's the first one, that's the dynastic view of marriage. And now we have, secondly, where we're currently sitting is the romantic view of marriage, the romantic ideal. This is the modern view. And this, marriage primarily serves to fulfill a personal romance and passion function. That now I marry by what makes my heart flutter. Now I'm, I go into a room and I see 10 people and immediately I, I, I X out seven of them and I choose the three most attractive and I say, hopefully one of these I can make work. Okay? That I don't even think in a social way anymore. Now marriage is com- completely about an emotional connection, a romantic idea, a sexual bond or a sexual innuendo or a sexual connection between us. This is like, we can't help who we fall in love with. The problem with this, and we all know, is divorce is now necessary. Because we fall head over heels in love with people, and then six months later, we fall head over heels out of love with this person. So, as in the first one, we had high commitment, low romantic passion, Now we have high passion, high romance, high octane. We just have 27-day marriages, right? No commitment. 
I'm making a commitment for as long as my feelings last. I do for as long as I feel hot and bothered by this person. And as soon as it wanes, I'm bolting out the door. Life is too short to live with somebody that's boring. You commonly hear stuff like this. Love shouldn't be this hard. Love should come naturally. What? What? Have you ever thought of that? I've never heard a runner say that. Running. Running should not be this hard. Why is running hard? It's not natural. Love is not natural in ourselves. It's not natural. Tim Keller says, I've never heard a professional baseball player say, throwing a 90 mile an hour fastball should not be this hard. Why do we think love should be easy? Love shouldn't be this hard. It's the romantic ideal. Now listen, here's here's what's cool. At the foundation of both of these views, they're the same. Both of these views are saying the purpose of marriage is to serve me. That means that it is your goal to find a spouse who can meet your needs. Are they social? Then look for a bank account. What's he driving? What kind of clothes is he wearing? Where does he work? Are you young and money don't really mean nothing? And you're just looking for, how's he looking in them jeans? Right? What do you need? And then you go after what you think you need. Both views say marriage is about meeting my needs. Marriage is about me getting fulfilled. Marriage is about me. These people must have certain traits that you find useful, either practical needs or romantic ones. I'm going to be a workaholic, so I need somebody to take care of the house. Right? We trade off business deals. Marriage is now a business deal. Both of these views, this is crazy, both of these views see passion and lifetime commitment as completely diametrically opposed to each other. They say, choose one. Do you want to be hot all your life? And, and, and we, we do this, right? This is why we work out a lot because we want to keep be hot all the time. This is why, you know, if you want to invest in something in the future, invest in Botox, okay? Because it's getting worse and worse and worse and people are starting to look, actually look like, you know, plastic Barbie dolls in their face. I'm like, what the heck? I could bounce a ping pong ball off her lips. It's not normal, but we're trying because we desire. uh, This is all I've got to offer. My physical appearance is all I have to offer. It's the only way I can draw a person into this business contract that I need. I need to be taken care of for the rest of my life. So I better have the goods on the outside. It's all about me. And both of these views see passion and lifelong commitment as completely diametrically opposed. You're either going to be married and bored. Or you're going to be in and out of relationships constantly because you're chasing that heart flutter. And you know this marriage has only got, it's got a six-month expiration date. It's got a one-year expiration date. It's got a two-year expiration date. Or, like they used to do in the dynastic view, you, you, you get married for commitment and then you just have something on the side. Romance, commitment, diametrically opposed. And this is where... This is the brilliance of God and his design. In the scriptures we see, and in our text we're going to see, the Bible says that's just too small of a view of marriage. Your lens is messed up. Your filter is jacked up. That's too small of a view. In in marriage, in the Bible, marriage should be a lifelong commitment and a lifelong passion. Lifelong commitment and a lifelong passion. Lifelong commitment and a lifelong passion. They are not mutually exclusive. Okay, so here is, I'm going to give you, here, this is our purpose statement. The next five weeks or four weeks or however long we're going to be here, this is our purpose statement. And I borrowed it from Tim Keller. <clears throat> the purpose of marriage is not to fulfill me socially or to fulfill me emotionally. Here it is. The purpose of marriage 
is to serve your spouse with a vision of their future glory. What the heck does that mean? The purpose of marriage is to serve your spouse with a vision of their future glory. The purpose of marriage is to say, listen, I see something glorious that God is doing in you and I want to be a part of it. The purpose of marriage is to say, I see something glorious that God is doing in you and I want to be a part of it. I want to get my hands on that. I want to be, I want to help you accomplish that. I want to work with the spirit of God and and the father and the son. I want to work with you to see that happen. Can you say that? Can you even see what God is doing in your spouse? Young men who aren't married. Man, as soon as I say that, something just jumps inside of me. And I want to just, I feel like the Holy Spirit just says sick them every time I say that. You want to know how I know you're not ready for marriage? Because you can't even see your sister. You can't even look at a woman and see what is going on inside of her. That God is at work in her heart to recreate her into new creation. You can't even see that. All you see is a sexual receptacle. You're not ready for marriage. And you know it. That's why you hide in mom and dad's basement. That's why you hide down there. That's why one blogger says, that's why you've been wired with a flaw-o-matic. What's a flaw-o-matic? Every single girl you meet, you see all of her flaws. That's all you see. Well, she had weird elbows. <laughs> Put down the controller and go meet a real woman. Stop clicking on the pornography and go to meet and go meet a real woman and serve a woman of God like your sister. Do it and you'll find yourself getting broad shoulders where you can carry responsibility. You'll find yourself in a mess where God puts you there to cultivate and till and to help women become who they've meant to be become meant to become. That one of our chief jobs as men was to cultivate What does cultivate means? That means that over there is a hard ground. It's a mess. Work it. That's our, that's part of our responsibility as men. And this doesn't have, I don't flip that switch when I get married. Guess I got to be responsible now. Guess I got to start caring about somebody other than myself. It starts now, men. Young ladies, it starts now. This doesn't happen in the bars on Saturday night. I, I, you know, I, I just love the lyrics. The lyrics of our generation just, just say so much about where we are. You know, you know, one of the, you know, whatever, last summer or something like that, you know, Bruno Mars comes out with a song, I'll Catch a Grenade for You, right? And I'm like looking at him, I'm like, and then his next song is lazy something. I just want to be lazy all day. And I'm going to be like, yeah, you know what? That's the truth right there. That's the truth. Anybody can catch a grenade for somebody. That's easy. That's easy. I'm talking about carry a hoe, boy. Carry a hoe until the ground every day. I can be lazy and catch a grenade for somebody. That's not love. I might feel like jumping on a grenade one day. Wow, I feel really manly and honorable today. Whom I'm going to jump on a grenade. I'm going to be, die with honor. It's, that's a one-time decision. Wake up every day. Put your work clothes on. Put your big boy pants on. Put your boots on and go to work every day. Come home with grease on your hands and dirt under your fingernails every day. That's what it means to be a man. Every day. When I don't feel like it. When it's cold outside, every day, every day, we're cultivators, we're workers. It's part of our calling. It's part of who God made us to be. And young men, it doesn't happen when one girl finally sees you as worthwhile. And all of a sudden you get in this relationship and then you realize, oh, crap. I don't know what I'm doing. 
She doesn't care, right? She doesn't care about your video game stats. She doesn't care about your Frisbee golf score. This changes our approach to marriage. I don't look at my spouse or my future spouse or a, 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 a woman or a man and say, how can you be useful to me? I look at them and say, how can I be useful to what God is doing in you? And the Bible says that, listen, this is not like, oh, that sounds just like boring and laborious and oh, really difficult and just suck it up and you're going to be miserable the rest of your life. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Bible says that I find joy when I lose my life. That I, found, I find my life when I lose it. That I get something by laying it down. <clears throat> lose your life and, you're fi- and you will find it. Now listen, I, I always do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again. I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite authors ever. So I'm going to quote, kind of an extensive quote. Um, from mere Christianity. He says this, your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, so he's talking about the new creation that's going on in our heart, will not come as long as you're looking for it. You hear that? You can't go home and go, make me a new person. I'm ready to be the man. Make me a new man. No, it doesn't happen that way. We do that with... I'm ready to get married. Where's he at? Where's she at? Where are they at? I'm ready. Doesn't happen that way. Doesn't come when you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him, Jesus. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters, even in social life. You will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes. Every day and death of your whole body, in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have given away, that nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ. And you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. My goal as a husband is my wife's glory. What does that mean, Justin? I'm just going to give you a little tease of what that means. Look at verse 27. Now, verse 25. Let's go to 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. That's your job, men. Give yourself up for her. Lay your life down. That he, why? Why? That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Look at this. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. Do you see what this is saying? My job as a husband is my wife's glory. That one day I'm going to stand before God and I will have to present my wife back to God and she better look better than when he gave her to me. I am responsible for that. Did you hear that? My goal as a husband is my wife's glory. What is God doing in her? And when I say glory, I mean the the future new created self. That in heaven she'll be without decay, she'll be without sin, she will be perfect, right? And we're in the process of being made into the image of Christ. We're being made into that image. My goal is to love her in such a way and serve her in such a way and lay my life down for her in such a way that it's her glory. 
that I can look back and say, my wife is more beautiful today than she was a year ago. More like Christ today than she was a year ago. And this is what we're responsible for. He goes on and says, this is a great mystery. This is like Christ in the church. This is what Christ does. He washes us with the word of God, that he cleanses us to present us to God, holy and without blame. Amen. This is our job as husbands. I am responsible for that. So Paul is saying right away, and listen, men, oh, but my wife, you don't know my wife. That don't matter. That don't matter. Adam could say the same thing. Adam and Eve. How many times is Eve blamed for the sin of the garden in in scriptures? Who ate first? Eve. How many times is she blamed for it? Zero. It's called federal headship. The man is responsible. Comes back to the man. If if Eve would have ate the apple and Adam would have said, woman, uh uh-uh, you disobeyed Jesus. No, no, no. Give me that apple. Put it... Put it back on the tree. Like, we're not, uh-uh, we're not, we're not eating it. We're not eating it. Guess what? Original sin, what happened? The breaking of creation would not have happened. It happened through Adam's sin. He's responsible. Men, the culture of your home, the spirituality of your home, it's your responsibility, not hers. Your, even the raising of your children. You think, well, I just dish, I dish that off to her. We delegate in my house. You can't delegate the raising of your kids. It all comes back to you. You work together, but the responsibility lies in your lap. So Paul is saying right away, before we even get to the real intricacies of a biblical marriage, that in order for you to have a good, God-glorifying marriage, you must, look at this, kill your self-centeredness by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the key to a great marriage. Kill your self-centeredness. So how does that work? Well, listen, uh, um, Augustine coined this phrase and then Martin Luther expanded on it in his commentary uh, to the Romans and he uses this uh, Latin phrase called incurvitus in se. In curvitus in se. He says, because of Adam and Eve, an original sin that we're all born with, even our babies are born with original sin in their veins, we are in curvitus in se. We are curved in on ourselves. We are self-centered individuals. We want our own will, our own desires, our own needs to be met. Above all things, we're curved in on ourselves. Self-centeredness is the cancer that will ruin your life. Self-centeredness is the cancer that will damn your soul. Self-centeredness is the cancer that will ruin your marriage. This is why marriage is so difficult. This is why love is so hard. We are bent in on ourselves. We step into a marriage saying, all right, I'm going to be really nice as long as they do what I want. If you love me and my love tank is full... then everything will go well. Incurvitus in se. Even Christian folk, incurvitus in se. We're curved in on ourselves. We're saying this is a contractual obligation. You love me, I love you. That's the way it works. You don't love me, things are going to go bad. At the root of any marriage problem, you can look to self-centeredness as the problem the root of every marriage problem, all of your relational problems, you can look at self-centeredness as the problem. Um, so let me, let me just give you one little example here. So my goal as a husband is, to, is, is my wife's future glory. So my goal is for her to grow in Christ, to maturity in Christ, that, my, that under my love and under my shepherding, that I will cultivate her and she will flourish like a garden. That's my goal as a husband. Okay, so this is what happens. This is what you see. Let's, let's talk about confrontation in marriage. Okay, typically, you've got two ways, to think, th- two ways this can go bad. Number one, um, a person, we're all bent in on ourselves, a person doesn't ever confront. And many people, oh, that's love. I, I never confront that person. No, not according to this biblical view of marriage, that's not love, because love would confront 
speak the truth in love because we want to see this person grow into maturity in Christ. So what, what is that? Listen to this. Incurvitus in se. We're curved in ours. I don't confront that person with their sin because I'm more concerned about my temporary peace and happiness. If I go to her or go to him and say, that really hurt me, or I, I think we should talk about this, um, that wasn't biblical or that wasn't gospel-centered or something. I want to talk about, I want to address this. I want to confront them in love. That's going to bother me. Maybe he, won't, maybe he or she won't react right. That messes with my personal peace. That messes with my uh, mojo that I've got feeling that day. I don't want to bother that person. I don't. You're not confronting them. You're not speaking the truth to them because you're curved in on yourself. You're serving yourself. The opposite happens too. You see one little flaw, you see one little flaw, and you pounce on it. Right? You let them have it or let her have it. You see one little area of weakness and you just lash out at it. You're not gracious. You're not operating in love. You're a brute. And what are you doing? You're not laying your life down. You're not seeking her future glory. You're wounding her. You're hurting her. You're harsh with her. Your annoyance, your your temporary annoyance is more important to you than her future glory. Your, and the opposite one, your temporary frustration or your temporary uh, peace and happiness and calm and tranquility is more important than his future glory. And this is what happens, guys. When, we're, when, we, don't, when we fail to confront each other in love, what happens is 40 years later, we live on two different, different islands. They got two separate bedrooms. They got a a single bank account, but she's got her hobbies. He's got his hobbies. Two separate lives, no passion. I've heard Tim Keller say that uh, on the 40-year anniversary, they kiss, but it's forced. There's no passion. Why? Because I've went 40 years without confronting in love. I went 40 years serving myself instead of laying my life down for the good of my spouse. So this is putting the good of others ahead of my own. Paul's saying that a spirit-filled humility and ability to serve another person is the foundation of a good biblical marriage. You love the Bible? Great. You go to church? Great. You have hobbies in common? Great. You, have, you took the Myers-Briggs test and your personality works? Great. Can you walk in humility? Can you serve another person long-term at the expense of yourself? This is why Paul says, warning, do not try this without the Spirit of God. You will fail miserably. Are you doing this? Is this how your marriage works? Are you seeking each other's good and, others, and, and each other's glory? See, this word submit here, uh, it, it's actually a military word. If you've been in the military, you understand what it means to submit. You sign on the dotted line, and they tell you what to wear, and they tell you what your haircut's going to look like, and they tell you what you're going to eat, where you're going to go, when you're going to be there. You're signing over your life to them. For a season. That's what it means to submit. Listen to this. That's why I started with this verse and not the next verse, 22. Submit to one another. I sign my life over. She signs her life over. Okay, what do we do now? This is not the man. Give me it. Give me it, girl. Sign on the dotted line. Give me it. Okay, now let me tell you what's going to happen. Or... The woman, many times, he didn't tell me what I'm going to do, so I'm going to take over. He's lazy and whatever, 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 so I'm going to do this thing. And she runs the family, she runs the life, she runs him, she runs everybody. This is mutual submission. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Young men, young women, well, how do you practice this? We have this thing called missional community where we live as families on mission to serve the city. That's where you practice. Serve your brothers and sisters sacrificially. Bring main, main dishes, even though you got to go make it in your mom's kitchen. That's fine. Bring a main dish. Serve your brothers and sisters. Pray for them. Meet with them. Talk to them. Act like a man and a woman. <laughs> Mary, I think, what was it? I think Mary, Mary was married at, at, at 14, right? 14. Actually, my mom was married at 16. We're not ready to get married until we're 28 or 30. I got 10 years of college I got to get through, Justin. We spend a lifetime, a decade actually, we spend a decade just being fools. Are you learning through the Spirit, how to serve others at the expense of yourself. Listen, this is, this, is where, this is where joy is found. This is where your real life is found. This is where happiness is found. It's found on the other side of service. It's found on the other side of laying your life down. Well, how, how the heck are we supposed to do this? Just, you know... What am I supposed to do? You know, send a text to myself every morning. All right, put your big boy pants on today. It's your time to be a man. All right, just could you call? I literally had people, t- people ask me, could you call me every morning and wake me up? No, I am not calling you every morning and waking you up. <laughs> Justin, I just need you to yell at me in the morning. No, that's not happening. What is your motive? I can't be your motivation. What is your motivation to do this? Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that word reverence, again, the the, the translators try to do a service for us, but the real word is fear. Submitting to one another out of fear of Christ. Now fear, we don't like that in our English language because, and it doesn't really mean like, oh, I'm so scared of Jesus that I'm going to submit to you. Okay? It is like an awe-inspired love. An awe-inspired love. That's, what, that's the type of fear it's talking about. If you are awed at Christ, then you won't do this. You won't look at marriage as a savior. Ladies, it's going to get me out of this house. I feel really lonely. I, I'm constantly you know, insecure. And if I get this man, that's all I need. And he'll give me the love I want and I'll be whole. Wrong. That's idol worship. Marriage is not your savior. Christ is your Savior. And it won't, it'll cause you not to demonize marriage and say, oh, that's a broken institution and that'll never work. And No. Look to Christ. See, marriage is a mystery. Paul says later on in this chapter, marriage is a mystery. What it does is it points past itself to Christ. Marriage points past itself to Christ. He is the only perfect spouse who can bring us ultimate fulfillment. Do not place impossible demands upon your spouse. Listen, what I said about husbands, they're not your sanctifier. The spirit of God at work in you is what sanctifies you. Christ has sanctified you. They're cultivators. So it's not his job to wake up every morning and did you read your Bible today? Did you pray? Let me see your list. How long did you spend? That's not his job. He cultivates. He creates the atmosphere. He creates a good culture in the home where that kind of stuff happens. He makes sure there are good gospel-centered books on the bookshelf. He makes sure that you have a Bible that you can understand. He makes sure you get an hour or two by yourself a week where you can go to the coffee shop and study Scripture and read the Bible and have some time with women and be at the, the women's ministry. He makes that kind of stuff happen. That's what he does. That's how he cultivates. Do not place impossible demands on your husband or on your wife. Only Christ can satisfy those needs. The reason marriage is so painful and so wonderful at the same time is because it's a reflection of the gospel. What is the gospel? You've heard me say it. The gospel is this. You are far worse. You are far more self-centered. You are far more wicked 
than you ever thought possible. But at the same time, simultaneously, you're more loved and accepted than you ever hoped. Marriage shows us this. Marriage exposes our flaws. But also, if it's a gospel-centered marriage, it looks through the flaws to your future glory and says, I will be there. I'm staying right here. Marriage can be beautiful. I see your flaws. I see your failures. I see your mistakes. I see your sins. But I look through them to the cross. I look through them to new creation. I see where you're going and I'm making a promise to you right now. I'm going to be there on the other side. 40 years from now, when we're still working this stuff out, I'm going to be there. Even though you're going to be different and I'm going to be different, I'm going to make a promise I'm going to be there. Every time I think about this, man, I, I get goosebumps because I think of what Jesus did on the cross. I think of him hanging up there when all the weight of my sin, my curse was placed upon him. This, this moment, right, where he, is, he reached the, reaches the absolute abyss, the bottom. None of us have ever felt like this. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time in scripture Jesus refers to the father as God and not his father. Because he felt separated from him. The father had turned his back on him. He'd become a curse for us and the father turned his back from us. And Jesus, when he felt the weight of that disconnect with the father, when he felt the weight of that sin and that curse, he could have called 10,000 angels. He looked down at the people and they're cursing at him. They're spitting. They're throwing rocks. They pulled his hair. They beat him. And when he could have got down, when this is a bad spouse. I'm dying for these people. They're not fulfilling their obligation. They're not loving me. They're not worshiping. They're not serving me. They're not laying their life down for me. They're they're taking my life. When he had every reason to get down, he stayed. He stayed. How do you stay in a bad marriage? With the power of Christ. By looking at the cross, he stayed for you. He stayed for you. Every reason to get off the cross. Every reason to say, no, it ain't worth it. It's too much pain. It's too difficult. But he stayed. When I get tempted to bail, when I get tempted to give up, this is the most powerful image that I see. I haven't reached the point of shedding my blood. It's real chivalrous, right? I'll catch a grenade for you. Give me a break. Lay down your life every single day. Do that. Do that. Christ has done no less for us. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, I pray that we remember. I pray that we have eyes to see. I know we push back on, Justin, I'm not really that self-centered. There's this thing inside of us that say, Justin, I'm not self-centered. I'm just hurt. Listen, Justin, I'm not self-centered. You don't know the way my parents treated me. Justin, I'm not self-centered. I've been abused. Justin, I'm not self-centered. I just react that way because I'm hurt. Listen, your hurt and your pain and your abuse is real. And I want to validate that and say, we can't bypass that and just walk away and say, just get over it. It's there. But if you're in a marriage, what's bigger to you? What's bigger, your woundedness or your self-centeredness? You are, the Bible says you are self-centered before you're wounded. This is what happens when I get in marriage. Her her faults become bigger than my faults. I don't see my stuff. I see her stuff. And she needs to work on it. I'm praying for you, girl, because you need to work on this. And I don't see my stuff. I don't see my self-centeredness. But I see her stuff. And I say, if she'll work on it, I'll work on it. If she fixes that, then maybe I'll do this. Father, I pray we could see our sin greater than we can see our own wounds. 
that we can see our sin greater than we can see the sin of our spouse or the sin of our friends or the sins of those around us. Like Paul, we could say, I'm the worst sinner I know. And Father, when we get to the bottom of that, we get to look up and say, by your grace, we've been saved. I'm that bad, but I'm that loved at the same time. And that love can free us from the pain and the prison of our own woundedness. That love can free us from the prison of our self-centeredness. And I pray, come Holy Spirit and rid our hearts of that wicked self-centeredness. Make us into the image of Christ. Use the crucible of marriage to do that. Use the, the, the most intimate relationship on the planet between a husband and a wife. Use that to make us into your image. Use that, Lord, and let it be to our joy. Let us get a sense of the new creation. Let us get a glimpse of the new creation in our spouse and let us be aroused by it. Let us be overwhelmed by it. Let us be excited for what you're doing in our spouse. And Father, remind us as we come to the table today that you are our great spouse. You are the lover that can free us from the demands of every other lover. You are the great lover that can set our heart free. In Jesus' name, amen. We, um, we take part in communion every week. Um, we have wine and grape juice, so if you want one or the other, you can ask. We have... Um, gluten-free crackers and regular ones if um, you are gluten intolerant. And um, this table is for baptized believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have been baptized, we welcome you. Um, This means a great deal to us. We believe that it's a means of grace that God actually communicates something to us. It's not just a symbol and a sign that we do. Uh, This is that God does something through us and in us um, as we take communion together and we do it on a weekly basis. Um, If you are a believer or you became a believer in the past few weeks or even today, you say, I want to put my faith in Christ and you have not been baptized. In two weeks from now, the last Sunday of this month, we're going to baptize um, people on this stage in the service. And um, if you would like to be baptized, we really encourage you to take that next step. Jesus said, believe and then be baptized. Out of obedience to God, we, we ask you to be baptized. We have a process You can find out more about it at the box office. It's on the city. It will take you a little bit of time. It'll take you a few days, so you can't wait and put this off. Um, But we would would really, um, we really desire to see you take the next step in your faith and be baptized. So that, that said, if the men who are serving this morning would come.